So our passage this morning, Proverbs chapter 5, if you're taking notes, our main point is this. Our main point. Patient trust in God leads to pure joy. Patient trust in God leads to pure joy. And we have two points this morning. Point number one, verses 1 to 14, temptation. Point number one, verses 1 to 14, temptation. And point number two, verses 15 to 23, satisfaction. Point number two, verses 15 to 23, satisfaction. It's my prayer this morning that as we see truth in this passage, that we will draw near to God and find in Him the pure joy that He has created us for. Let's read our passage this morning as we begin. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And as you consider this, listen to a father speaking with his son about some of the most enticing temptations that this world has to offer, but yet also a satisfaction that is offered when we accept God's gifts, God's gifts as he has designed them. Let's listen as I read Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner." And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is God's word. Let me say at the outset that the Bible doesn't shy away from speaking about subjects that many of us shy away from. The Bible addresses many things that we would tend not to talk about on our own. We, as a church, hold out the importance of expositional preaching 
What this means is that we walk through the Bible, through books of the Bible. We move around to the different parts of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, different genres, and we walk through, chapter by chapter, books of the Bible. And what this does is it allows God's Word to set the agenda for our churches, rather than for the preacher to set the agenda. When we walk through the Bible like this, there are times when we come across passages we wouldn't choose to preach on on our own. I'm pretty sure that I would not choose to preach on Proverbs 5 the Sunday after Thanksgiving. But here we are. It's the next section that we come to in the book of Proverbs. Notice, too, that there are things being talked about here. A father to his son. And it is one of the most awkward subjects that we can talk about. And the fact that this father is speaking openly about it is not because of his particular culture. My wife and I had been living overseas for six years, and we were in a city in Dubai in the Middle East where there were many different cultures. The church that I was a pastor at had 40 different nationalities in its membership. And I was the family ministry pastor, and I was often talking with couples about marriage, with parents about parenting. And in all of those 40 nations, I never came across one culture that found it easy to talk about sex. It's difficult to talk about sex because it is one of the most intimate things that we can enter into as human beings. And it's also one of the things where our greatest temptations come and where some of our greatest idols lie, the things we hold on to, the things that we want for ourselves. But the fact that it's awkward to talk about doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. In fact, Because it's so important, the father is speaking openly with his son about this. Not because it's easy, but because the temptations are so strong. Not because it's easy, but because the result of giving in to sexual temptation leads to God's punishment. Leads to eternal damnation, unless there is repentance, confession, turning away, and trusting in God's provision of salvation. So let me encourage you at the outset, parents, to talk with your children about the things that are of the utmost importance, whether it's easy for you to do it or not. Let me encourage you, young people, as you consider a future of marriage and children, to remember this passage and to remember that God doesn't leave us in the dark about the most important things in life. He speaks openly about it. He isn't ashamed of it. And we shouldn't be more prudish than God. We should speak openly with our children and even with one another about some of the greatest temptations in our lives and bring those temptations to light so that they have less and less power over us. As we begin, look at, again, at verses 1 and 2. Look at the command that is repeated throughout Proverbs. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. The father desires his son to be wise, and in order for him to be wise, he needs to have ears that are attentive, ears that are open to listening to God and to his word. This is where it all must begin. Our sin closes our ears and closes our minds. We desire the things that we want, and we don't want to hear anyone who would tell us otherwise. But if we are to be truly wise, we must have ears willing to listen to God, even when it goes against the things we desire, or even if it goes against our culture. Look at verse 2, this command to keep discretion and that our lips 
might guard knowledge. There is a theme throughout Scripture of the importance of protecting the truth against distortion, protecting the truth against those that would seek to twist it. It is a theme throughout almost every New Testament epistle, the temptation to false teaching, to doctrinal heresy. If we are to keep the truth, we must, we must listen to what God has to say and not give in to the things that we desire or the things that our culture tells us. The remarkable thing in the New Testament epistles is that so much of false teaching seemed to be connected to this particular temptation. Almost every time a New Testament writer, one of Christ's apostles, warns about false teaching, sensuality or sexual immorality seems to be connected to it. In other words, there is, in our temptation to sexual immorality, a desire to twist the truth to allow such sin to be acceptable. The New Testament apostles warn against those who would have itching ears to hear things that they want to hear, who would then go find teachers to tell them things that would allow them to do the things that they wanted to do. What the father here is telling his son is to hold on to the truth and to guard it so that he does not give in to temptation through twisting or distorting the truth and not guarding knowledge, holding on to the truth as it is spoken from God's mouth. As we consider this beginning section in terms of application, what this means is that your, your temptation, brother or sister in Christ, your temptation to doctrinal error will very often come not from being reasoned into a different theology, but from having a desire, a temptation that begins in your heart, that you hold on to, that then leads to you changing your perception of the truth or your theology to allow you to do the things that you want to do. This is very often how doctrinal error comes. Not through being reasoned out of the truth of God's Word, but from having something in this world, some temptation. Often it's sexual immorality that we hang on to, and then we change our theology to permit it. Let me encourage you, Christian, to keep a watch on your heart so that your doctrine doesn't stray. Look at the particular temptation that the father is warning his son against in verses 3 through 6. He has in mind here a forbidden woman. Whether this is a prostitute or an adulteress, seems to be a general category of temptation that for a young man is particularly tempting. This theme has begun in chapter 2. He's going to come back to it in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 9. This is one of the strongest temptations that face young people, and not just young people. But because this young man is young and inexperienced, the father wants to be sure that he's not taken unaware by these temptations. He tells him in verse 2 that his lips should be guarding knowledge, and then you see there's a wordplay here. The lips of a wise person speaking the truth and guarding knowledge is then connected with the lips of a forbidden woman. Her lips are dripping honey, which seems to be a reference to the temptation of kisses being sweet that attract us. But then also her words that come from her lips, her speech that is smoother than oil. As she uses her words 
to draw the young man into sexual immorality. And as there is here a, a tempting, an offer of something sweet that is desired, the father holds out the reality that such offers will not, cannot satisfy. Look at verse 4. In the end, though she promises something sweet, she is bitter as wormwood. She is sharp as a two-edged sword. She promises something good, but what comes is something bitter. She promises life and something life-giving, but in the end, this sin will cut a person down. Verses 5 and 6 are even stronger. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. In other words, the path that she's calling this young man to go down, this two paths that are regularly held out here in these first nine chapters of Proverbs, the path of life and the path of death, well, her feet are on the path that leads to death. And if you are to follow this temptation to sexual immorality, you are heading towards death. Because her steps follow not only to death, but the ultimate death of the afterlife, Sheol. And look at verse 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not even know it. She's not considering the path that leads to God. In fact, she doesn't know where she's going. She is deceived. She thinks that her sin is good and does not know where it will end up. You consider a warning like this the temptation that's being held out here. I want to I hold out for you a, a wonderful little book that has been life-giving to me by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. This writer from the 17th century says in his introduction, his dedication at the beginning of his book, that there are four things, four prime things, that for Christians should be the first and most studied and searched. These four things, Christ, the Scripture, our own hearts, and Satan's devices. Christ, the Scripture, our own hearts, and Satan's devices should be the four things that Christians study and search out. And then he says, if any cast off the study of these four things, they cannot be safe here or happy hereafter. What does he mean by this? Well, he means that we as Christians need to study Christ. We need to study the scriptures, but we also need to study our own hearts to understand our particular temptations and what it is that we may be tempted to. And then we need to search out Satan's devices, his plans to lead us astray. He then spends the whole book thinking through these devices or these plans or strategies that Satan has to tempt young people, to tempt old people to sin and to tempt us away from God. His first device, one of Satan's strategies, is this, and I think he may get it right from this passage. Device number one, to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the bait and hide the hook. He says Satan is like a fisherman. He puts the, the worm on the hook, which is enticing for the fish, but the fish can't see the hook that's hidden there. And that's what Satan does. He presents something desirable, but he hides where it ultimately leads and what is the ultimate result of sin, which is punishment and death. He says that Satan presents the golden cup and hides the poison. He presents the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit. 
but he hides the soul, the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this strategy, he took our first parents, and the serpent said unto the woman, You will not surely die. He then holds out for us remedies. Remedies that would help us to fight such temptations. Remedy one is first, as we see in our passage, keep at the greatest distance from sin and from playing with the golden bait that Satan holds forth to catch you. Keep at the greatest distance from sin. I'm not sure where for you these particular temptations to sexual immorality may come or where the words of such forbidden desire comes from for you. In our day and age, they come from not just a certain house of ill repute, a red light district, a certain club or parlor. In our day and age, it comes from so many different places. It even comes from a computer screen, from a tablet, or even from the smartphone in your pocket. But just as the Father here writes, and as the Pastor Brooks puts it, it is incumbent on us to keep the farthest distance possible from sin and from any temptation. Remedy number two. Remedy number two to Satan's devices of offering the bait and hiding the hook is to consider that sin is but a bitter sweet. That sin is but a bitter sweet. You see here the promise in our passage, the honey dripping from the forbidden woman's lips. But yet that her, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. What he means by this is that ultimately sin will never satisfy. Even where it is sweet for a time, it will not last and it will leave you with bitterness, with regret, with shame and guilt. Remedy number three to Satan's strategy is to consider that sin will usher in the greatest and the saddest losses that can be upon our souls. As you consider this particular temptation, let me encourage you, Christian, to not take sin lightly and to not consider that you are strong enough to fight it on your own. We as a congregation of Christians have gathered together and covenanted together as members of this church in order to help one another, not to pretend that we have it figured out, but to help each other fight the strongest of temptations and to use whatever strategy necessary to keep ourselves far away from sin and close to God. In this next section, verses 7 to 14, the father continues his warning. Look at verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline in my heart, despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The Father holds out not only that this path leads to death, which it does, but that this path can lead even in this life to ruin, but certainly in the next life as well. You see here that sin is never 
ever a private affair, but it will always one day be public. At times, it will be public in this life, as sinners are caught in their sin, as it brings shame, and as the social implications of sin eventually come out. There is here a warning that there is a day coming when sin will one day come out, and we will not be able to hide. There is here a warning of the destruction of social relationships, of a house being destroyed, of a home being wrecked, and of a man who's now old who refused to listen to his father's instruction. You see here that he takes the responsibility on himself in verses 11 and 12 and 13. The responsibility wasn't on his parents for not sharing these things with him, but on himself for refusing to listen. The judgment that's being talked about here may be the judgment of a court. There was in the Old Testament laws against sexual immorality. And it may be that the picture here is the picture of a court scene you see in verse 14, the assembled congregation, as in a court situation in the nation of Israel, God's people would be gathered together to hear witnesses and for a judgment to be enacted. You see the the public nature of sin. Whether sin comes out in this life or doesn't is not ultimately the issue, because one day all sin will be public, and all sin will come out, whether in a court situation like this, or whether in the final court, where all of us will stand before God, and all of our lives will be public, and where we will be either judged for our sin or, or freed... Because another one, Jesus Christ, took the judgment that our sins deserved. As you consider this public nature of sin, I'm reminded as a pastor of the importance of church discipline. You see this public nature and this scene of someone's sin being brought out and someone being shamed. And then at the end of his life, looking back with nothing but shame and regret... Church discipline is an opportunity for us as a congregation to bring sin into the light before it's too late, to help a fellow brother or sister in Christ or someone among us who calls themselves a Christian to take their sin seriously and to see it in light of the end and in light of the final judgment. When we as a church pursue a a sinner lovingly among us, we are enacting something of a court scene that is to foreshadow that final judgment day. And to remind people that there's a day coming and that they must be ready. And it is only those who repent of their sins and turn from sin that will one day be freed. As we consider this temptation that's being held out by the Father, and as we consider the ultimate result of such sin, judgment, we must... Remember our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, God become man, came to earth for sinners like us. For evil sinners who have pursued the path that leads to death, who have turned away from God and rejected His good and loving kingship over us. And He came to earth and He didn't give in to any temptation. In fact, He turned away from every temptation that came His way by guarding knowledge by his 
lips, guarding knowledge and keeping discretion. When Satan came to him with temptation and offered him the delights of this world, he held out God's word and fought against those temptations. And though he lived a life of perfection, always obeying his father and perfectly obeying the law, his path did not lead to life, but to death. And he took upon himself public shame. He took upon himself open shame in the assembled congregation as he was crucified publicly, taking upon himself the judgment that your sin and my sin deserved. But he took upon himself such judgment so that those of us who repent of our sins and trust in him would not have to face such public shame, but can forever be with him in his assembled congregation with nothing but joy and delight forever. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're considering the end that your sin deserves, know that there is a way out of such judgment and death. But it's only by humbling ourselves, by listening to this message of the gospel, by turning away from our sins and trusting in Christ, the perfect substitute and sacrifice, and asking Him to take away our sins. If you're here and a Christian, let me encourage you not to be tempted by this path, the path that leads to death, knowing where it leads. But do whatever it takes to fight temptation. As Jesus said, there may be hands or feet that we must cut off. We must do whatever it takes to be sure that we do not give in to temptation and give in to the sin that leads to condemnation. That's point number one, temptation. Point number one, temptation. This is now point number two, satisfaction. Point number two, satisfaction. Verses 15 to 23. Let's read this one more time. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. The father now holds out one tool for fighting such temptation, the temptation to sexual immorality. And the tool that he offers his son in fighting sexual immorality is to accept the gift of marriage and to delight in marriage as God has designed it. He encourages his son not to simply deny himself and think that self-denial is the solution, but to actually take joy and pleasure in God's good gift, the gift of marriage, the gift of a spouse, and to delight in this gift as God has designed, and to use God-given covenant marriage as a helpful tool in the fighting of temptation. He uses 
imagery of water, of a cistern, of a well, and of springs. Water in a a dry area like in the, the ancient Near East. Water was of an essential importance. They would have to think about water much more than we do. We simply turn on the tap and there's water. But in a a dry region like uh, Israel, like Palestine, water was something that you had to constantly think about. You had to think about it every day. You had to go and draw water. You had to find water. You had to find ways of getting water when there wasn't any water. Whether through a well, digging deeply and finding the water underneath the water table, or by creating a cistern, which was digging in a rock, digging something of a, um, of a, a dish, a huge dish or bowl out of the rock that would collect rainwater, that would keep water so that on the days there weren't rain and days when there wasn't water, that water would remain there. What the Father is saying here is that He needs to find life-giving sustenance, life-giving satisfaction through the drinking of the water of enjoying the gift of His spouse. He is to find life through his spouse. And just like a family that would have a well or a cistern that they would guard and keep in order to give life to the family, he says you should do the same with your marriage. There should be boundaries and protections by delighting in your spouse and only in your spouse so that you're not tempted to look for love in the wrong places. He says here, let them, that is your well, your cistern, your streams, Verse 17, be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Why should you be sharing the love of your spouse with someone else? And if you look for love somewhere else, that's basically what you're saying. But those who are married know there is a jealousy. A good God-given jealousy that desires our spouse and our spouse's love to be for ourselves and not for others. That is a good kind of jealousy that God has given to us. And then he tells, he commands his young son, who seems to be newly married, verse 18, to let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. We live in a a day and age where people tend to think that we can't help what we're attracted to. I hear this from lots of young people as I'm helping them think through who to marry who to consider for marriage. And I regularly hear young people say, well, I'm just not attracted to that person. And I can't really help who I'm attracted to. And you know that's not true. Here, the writer of Proverbs is saying, you need to help who you're attracted to. In fact, what he's saying is, you are allowed to be attracted to one person and only one person. You can be attracted as much as possible to that person. In fact, you should even be intoxicated in your delight in that one person, but only with that one person. In other words, you are to funnel, you are to focus all of your attraction on only one person. But then to have as much pleasure as possible in delighting in your particular spouse. You are to be a connoisseur of the beauty of only one person, your spouse, and not to look at the beauty of any other to not be drawn to the beauty of any other. He uses language of drunkenness. 
Now, drunkenness is never allowed in Scripture, but there is a particular kind of drunkenness that the father is holding out to his son, being drunk with the love of a spouse, to delight as much as possible in your spouse and to find joy and pleasure with a committed covenant relationship with the wife of your youth. That phrase there, the wife of your youth in verse 18 doesn't mean just while your wife is young or just while your husband is young. It's a figure of speech, meaning the one you married when you were young. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, the prophet speaks God's word to his people, and God is angry with his people because they are divorcing their spouses, these rich older men, and were marrying younger women, trading their wives in on a new model. And he says, you have despised the wives of your youth. It's God's plan For one man and one woman to be committed in a covenant of marriage to one another until death do us part. And not to be looking for love outside of that covenant. There is to be mutual love and delight within that marriage relationship, but not outside of it. And it is within those good and loving boundaries that joy, pure joy, can be enjoyed in marriage. And we as God's people need to be content and need to positively delight ourselves in the gift, the good gift of marriage that he has given. As you consider a passage like this, a passage that encourages married couples to be delighting in one another, to be enjoying the blessing of this covenant I wonder what you're thinking. Perhaps you're here and you want to be married, but God hasn't given you that particular gift yet. I wonder if you look at this and it seems dissatisfying to you for a father to be encouraging his young son to delight in marriage when it's the one thing you want, to be delighting in a spouse, but yet God hasn't given you the gift of a spouse yet. Are you discouraged? Are you frustrated? Let me encourage you, brother or sister, who desires marriage, to realize that marriage will not ultimately satisfy. And to realize that God has given you everything that you need in this moment for life and godliness. He's not withholding anything that you need ultimately. And let me encourage you, if you are here and you are single, to not live alone and separate yourself from others, but to find in the church a family where you can find a place, realizing that you're not alone, realizing that you can delight, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, to find in the church, in the the fellow members of the church, mothers in the older women of the congregation, fathers in the older men in the congregation, brothers in the, the younger men, sisters in the younger women. You can find here in the church a family as we live our lives together with one another. Let me encourage you to pursue relationships with other singles, to pursue relationships with other married couples, with families, with children, and find in these relationships something satisfying as we realize that we are all part of God's family and not alone. As you also consider this whole passage... I know that in our day and age, we tend to think that if there are no consequences to something, it can't be bad. You may consider a passage like this and think, well, as long as I don't get caught, 
It isn't bad. We tend to think this way about sin. If my sin doesn't hurt anyone, if it doesn't affect anyone, it's not really sin, right? Well, that's clearly not what God thinks about sin. A good illustration of this is King David in, uh, in 2 Samuel. You remember the, the passage, 2 Samuel 11, where King David looks over his balcony and sees a young woman who's actually a married woman, Bathsheba. He sends his servants and takes her by force, and he sleeps with her, someone who is not his spouse, while his soldiers are out at war. Now, you consider the passage. You remember it, right? How many people does David sin against in 2 Samuel 11? Well, he sins against Bathsheba. He takes her by force and sleeps with her. That's rape. Then you have Uriah. He sins against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by taking his wife from him. And then who else does he sin against? Well, he sins against his servants by requiring the servants to go and take part in this sin. He sins against the messengers who then go off to war and send Uriah back as he tries to cover it up. Then he sends the message with Uriah back and he sins against Abner by requiring Abner to formulate a plan to withdraw from Uriah during the fighting so that Uriah gets killed. So then he kills Uriah, another sin against Uriah. And then he sins against all of the soldiers that have to take part in this plan by removing themselves from their fellow soldiers so that he gets killed. And the list goes on and on. It's hard to find anyone in that passage that David hasn't sinned against. But when the prophet comes to David and tells him about his sin and calls him to repentance, David pens one of the most... Famous Psalm, Psalm 51. And how does he talk about his sin in Psalm 51? Does he talk about all of the people that he sinned against? Does he list Bathsheba and Uriah and Abner and servants and messengers? No, what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, what is David saying? Is he saying he hasn't sinned against all of these people? No. But he's saying that this sin, all of these sins are primarily sins against God. That these sins are ultimately against God as we shake our fist in God's face and we seek to do what we want and we seek to be king over our lives and we seek to be the lawgivers, the ones to declare what is good and what is right. Look at verse 21 of Proverbs 5. Look at this motivation for enjoying the gifts that God has given and being satisfied with his provision. See verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You realize that your life, your actions, even the desires of your heart, if they are against God, they are not ultimately against other people. Even if they are against other people, they are primarily against God because sin is ultimately rebellion against God. God takes our sins seriously because God has created us. He's created us to know Him and to be in a relationship with Him. And He's created us in His image so that we will be able to portray to the watching world something of what He is like. We are to imitate Him. When someone gives in to the temptation of sexual immorality, we are ultimately telling lies about God. 
what we are doing when we give in to sexual immorality is we are declaring with our actions that our God is unfaithful. That He will not keep His covenants. We are saying with our actions that our God is untrustworthy. And that He will not keep His promises. We are with our actions when we give in to sexual immorality. We are spurning God. The Apostle Paul picks up the same theme here in Proverbs 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. We have there a people that had come to know God out of all kinds of paganism and immorality. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul lists all of the kinds of people, similar to the list in Revelation 22 that we heard earlier, of all the kinds of people that will one day be condemned by God. And he lists sexual immorality, even homosexuality. And then he says at the end of that section, and such were some of you. That is, you used to be these kinds of things, but now you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were made holy like our God through Christ and through His righteousness being applied to you. And so then he tells them, do not then continue living in sin, but now offer up your members for holiness and righteousness and now live lives that would be pleasing to God. But then he acknowledges at the end of 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians that this temptation to sexual immorality will still be there even after we come to Christ, even after we are saved. And what is Paul's solution in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to such temptation to immorality? Well, it's the same as the writer of Proverbs 5. He says, get married and enjoy intimacy with your spouse and only with your spouse. Though he then holds out the opportunity to remain single and to be devoted, to be undivided in your devotion to the Lord, he then says, but if the temptation is too strong, you should get married and allow a God-given covenant of marriage to help you fight temptation to love outside of marriage. As we come to the end of our passage Let me tell you what another pastor told me. Sex is good, but it is not ultimate. Sex is good, but it is not ultimate. Sex is a good gift from God. God created it. He designed it. It's his idea. Satan didn't create sex. God did. Satan only twisted it. But as C.S. Lewis puts it, it is the greatest gifts that are the most dangerous to us because some of the greatest gifts that God has given can be set up as idols as we think of them as an ultimate thing. Romantic love is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to his creatures here on earth. But it is not ultimate and it cannot ultimately satisfy. And if we seek to make it an idol, it will destroy us and it will destroy others around you. Sex is good but it is not ultimate. And it is only to be a gift that will survive here in time and here on earth. Sex will not be brought into the afterlife. Even marriage, those in the world that think of marriage and romantic love as an ultimate thing, sing songs about how our love is forever. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible is much more realistic. Marriage is temporary. It is till death do us part, as our vows put it. 
Because we know that in the afterlife, Jesus tells us that men and women will not marry or be given in marriage, but we will be like the angels. Which means that sex and romantic love, while it is good and can be enjoyed according to God's design here on earth, it's a pointer to something much bigger and much better. Sex is a pointer to a much greater intimacy and delight that will be found only with God, with Christ in heaven forever. You see, there's another marriage that is going to take place. There is another marriage supper that is going to happen at the end of time when God's people, the church, are united with Christ and we are then with Him forever in heaven and able to enjoy a relationship with Him that will be so much more intimate and so much more delightful than anything that marriage in this life has to offer. Let me encourage you, brother or sister, as you fight temptation, realize, while sex is good, it is not ultimate, and it should not be pursued as an ultimate good, but as a pointer to something so much better. As we read in Revelation 22, there's a day coming when all of our desires will be satisfied as God has designed it as we are with Him and are able to enjoy intimacy with Him forever. Let me encourage you, brother or sister, to put your hope not on this life or even the good gifts that God has given in this life, but on Christ, realizing that one day all of your desires will be satisfied in Him as we're with Him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we confess that we are weak. We are prone to wander. We are prone to temptation. We are prone in our sin to twist even the good gifts that you have given us and to turn them bad. Father, we confess that you are the source of truth and the source of every good thing. And we confess that even your good gifts are not nearly as satisfying as you yourself. That even the good gifts you give us are to be like the present given to the child, only to turn our eyes back to you, confessing that you are good and worthy of all of our delight and affection. Father, we pray that we as a congregation would admit that we are weak, would fight sin and temptation and not give into it. That we would help one another realizing that each of us are weak and be willing to do whatever it takes to fight temptation and to delight in the gifts that you've given according to your design. We pray that we would be a contented people who delight in good things but are willing to be patient in our trust in you realizing that pure joy awaits and that pure joy is found in Christ and Christ alone. It's in Christ's Christ's name that we pray. Amen.